Good morning. My name is Bill Drips, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship. Uh, we're just delighted uh, that you're here this morning. And uh, people have different reasons for coming. Uh, whatever your reason, we'd like to get to know you and uh, have the opportunity to be involved with you. We're going to be looking this morning at Exodus starting in chapter 20, verse 22, and going uh, into Exodus 21. If you got one of the fancy new bulletins that we're putting out now, it has the, uh, the references there. I'm going to start with a, a little bit of a review. God gives us uh, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And he gives it to them, to Israel, after they have been delivered from slavery in Egypt and through the parting of the Red Sea. And some very dramatic things happen in Exodus, in the beginning chapters, as God frees his people. So now that they've been made the people of God, uh, it's important to note that this did not happen because they were better than other people. This happened rather to show the goodness and grace of God. And that should be good news to all of us. Because I don't know about you, but I know for sure that I'm not better than most people. And uh, uh, so it's a real encouragement to me that God includes us because of his goodness and his grace. The Ten Commandments are to instruct them how the people of God should live. And given the culture that they came from, the Ten Commandments had to be a real shock to the system. I mean, that whole business about there being only one God. I mean, how can you be so exclusive, right? I mean, what about all these other gods that people have? Aren't you going to hurt their feelings? Uh, probably. Um, so the Ten Commandments are given to instruct them how to live. Essentially, these are the foundations of godly character. They're universally true and applicable. Now, their purpose is to point us to Christ who redeems us. They are what we are going to become or what we're in the process of becoming but they're not how we get there. <clears throat> in other words, uh, God sends us a ladder from heaven, but it's not so that he can, so that we can climb that ladder and finally get to be good enough. It's so that he can reach down and bring us up with him. So they're what, they're what we're going to become. They're not how we get there. The Ten Commandments are foundational but they're not exhaustive. For example, what do you do when you walk into a fight between your kids where each one claims the other one started it? Has that ever happened to anyone here? Yeah, and how did you figure that out? And I have to confess that at times as Bonnie and I Went through that, sometimes we were deceived about that and found out later we had punished the wrong child. You know, actually, that's not good. Probably some of you here were punished as a small child for something you never did. 
Today's sermon gets into a passage like that that deals with a similar situation, but with much more serious consequences. So with the Ten Commandments as a foundation or a constitution, we move on to some specifics. Much of the rest of uh, Exodus goes into some of these specifics. We move into what's called the Book of the Covenant. And what do we find here? We find a number of different things. One of the things we find is statutes. And those are laws given for specific circumstances. Sometimes these laws are not ideal, but they reflect what was possible at the time. Politics has also been described as the art of the possible. It's also been described as making sausage. If you like sausage, never go see how it's made. And, uh, and so some of these things were given because of what, and they were given in the way they were given to fit the situation as opposed to it being the ideal. Okay? Uh, when people are murdering and stealing and all that kind of thing, obviously the situation is not ideal. Also, we find a great deal of case law. Now, that's how a judge decided to apply the law in a specific circumstance. These case laws can get quite detailed. To understand properly, we really need to think about the circumstances. It only makes sense as we consider the exact circumstances. We also find exhortations to obey God, promises for those who obey, and finally punishments for those who disobey. So the book of the covenant, as contained in the book of Moses, excuse me, book of Exodus, is an amalgamation of various legal components that can be very useful to us. They give us examples of how God reasons from general principles like the Ten Commandments to specific situations. It's true that much of this section we're going to look at today is not directly applicable to us because, believe it or not, our situation is different from those guys wandering in the desert in Sinai. Thank God, right? <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that these things that God said are not applicable. It's true that what these things contain are guidelines that we need daily to cope with issues never addressed anywhere in the scriptures. Much of modern life, we deal with things that were unknown in biblical times. It doesn't mean that the Bible is not totally relevant. It is. And we're going to see how that's done here. And so we come to the title I chose for this sermon, which is God Does OIA. And OIA is an acronym for the method we use here at Grace Fellowship to properly interpret the scriptures. The O stands for observation. The I is interpretation. And the A is application. And this is a process we go through to correctly arrive at what the scriptures are saying. We observe, what does the scripture say to those people long ago? It's amazing how many people, when they talk about the Bible, never reference actually what it says. It's, it's, it's done. <laughs> Interpretation. What would it have meant to them back then 
and how would they have applied it in their culture? And then application based on the above, how should we apply it today in our situation? <clears throat> we'll see many examples in the book of covenant of the covenant where this method of studying God's word is demonstrated. And we will also see Jesus and the apostles use it in the New Testament. All of this will give us the key to faithfully applying the scriptures to all the various issues of life we will meet. And I just want to kind of emphasize something there. The reason we do it this way is because this is the way we see the authors of scriptures doing. And we're trying to go along with them. We feel like that Jesus and the apostles probably knew what they were doing. So we're going to try to get on that bandwagon. So number one, worship God only. And this is Exodus 20 verses 23 through 20, 22 through 26. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it, and you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's, uh, let's talk about some of the things that God is saying here in this passage. And two conclusions I think we should come to from this passage are that we should worship God in all things and everywhere. And number two, worship God, not images of God. So I'd like to go down through this passage and talk about where this comes from. So in verse 22, in the first part there, <clears throat> Moses writes that they have actually seen what communion with God is about. God speaks to us. Now, people do all kinds of things in worship, right? But the essence of worship is what God has said and responding appropriately to that. That's where this comes from. All of worship actually finds its root in the meeting of God with his people. Then in the second part of 22, God speaks from heaven. Now there's an interesting thing. Where on earth can you be and not reach heaven? So actually what he's saying here by this is that you can worship God and you should worship God everywhere. God has talked with us from heaven. And then in 24b, where should we, and he gets more explicit about this, in every place his name is remembered. Second part of uh, verse 24 in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. So basically, we should worship God in all things and everywhere. Now, let me, let me throw you a curveball here. 
In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, Israel is commanded to worship in only one place. Only Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. There's a contradiction here. This is an example of these case laws where things were decided on a case-by-case basis. And as they're wandering in the wilderness, they can't exactly say only worship one place. Now, when they go into the land of Israel, they are commanded to worship only one place. Why is that? Well, it's because the land is full of idols. And they've got all these little idolatrous shrines everywhere. God does not want people worshiping in those places. So he sets up Jerusalem as a place where they can supposedly get it right. But you know, here we are, right? State College, Pennsylvania. This is not Jerusalem and we're worshiping. Where do we get off doing this? Well, in John chapter 4, verse 9 through 26, I'm sure you remember this. This is Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. And he tells the woman that worship in Jerusalem or in Samaria is unimportant. Worship in spirit and truth is all important. And so what we have here is that God is teaching his people how to worship. And the first things are baby steps. And as time goes on, we can learn more. He reveals more. We can learn more about how to worship. All of this illustrates that the proper way to apply scriptures requires careful consideration. Now, let me look back through this and look at how we are to worship God and not images of God. In verse 23, images of God are what? They are insults to him, right? He's the creator. He is the maker of every beautiful thing. He he is perfection at a level and a degree we cannot imagine. What we try to build in terms of representing God is like a little kid with crayons taking the black crayon and scribbling from one side of the page to the other. And oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? It will be when you have kids, you know. (laughs) But that's what our attempts to make images that represent God are like. Don't make them. And, you know, if we want to look into the future as to what this really means, maybe what it's talking about is don't trust in other things besides the Lord. These days, we probably don't go around with too many idols. Um, I'm sure there are places in the world where they still do that. But maybe today this speaks in our situation mainly to things that we trust in other than the Lord himself. First part of verse 24, an altar of earth is plenty good enough. It's about a meeting between God and his people. It's not about the furniture. Now, we may be impressed with the beauty of the church, of a church, and that's fine. As I said before, the creator of all that is beautiful is not particularly impressed. And then in verse 25, if we do make an altar of stone... I mean, he's not finicky about what we pick, right? Do it this way, do it that way. 
We should not carve the stones. You know what? That says, I'll tell you what that says to me. The altar is not the important thing. What's important is what's on, is, is who is being worshipped at this altar. It's the worship of God that's important. And a way that we could apply that today is to realize the quality of our faith is not important. It's who we have faith in that is important. Right? If you're getting on a, an airplane and the pilot has decided that he's going to crash the plane and take everybody with him, and you have faith in that pilot, what good is that going to do you? It ain't going to do us even a little bit of good for you. So it, it's, it's who we have faith in, not how strong our faith is. So to summarize, this paragraph applies the first two commandments in the area of worship. Because God, because God's unique character, no representation of him be, can, can be adequate. And because of his greatness, there can be no limits to our worship of him. So let's go on to the, the next part of the passage, and starting in Exodus 21. Uh, and I've called that care for the weakest. Exodus 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And on the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without any payment of money. Uh, now, before I get into this passage, let me tell you my own personal feelings about slavery. It's the worst blot on the history of the United States, bar none. The effects of it when it was legal were abhorrent, and the effects that remain today are the most divisive and long-lasting that we as a society have ever had to deal with. Now, having said that about American slavery and what Exodus describes as slavery are two quite different things. They are not the same thing at all. Slaves in Exodus had rights. They were freed after six years. And in fact, 
this section here in my notes I've entitled Gradual but Quick Emancipation. And um, it, it's, it's extraordinary that the very first thing that Moses deals with in his book of the covenant is, is this issue of slavery. Because it's the rights of the least in society. And let me tell you what, this is not how people generally write books of law. Um, I, I saw a sermon where there, one ancient law code had like 400 pages and slavery wasn't dealt with until like 380. Okay, so this is, this is front and center. Slavery in the ancient world was widespread. The Hebrews were all slaves in Egypt. In democratic Athens, the vast majority of people were slaves. Did you know that? Only about one in ten Athenians was a free citizen. The rest were slaves. And we could go through most all the ancient societies and, and find that slavery was extremely widespread. So what is Moses doing here? What's God doing here? He's taking people who were slaves in a slave society and he's trying to move them into being citizens. Okay, how do you do that? People are accustomed to being a certain way. So that's what he's doing. He's saying six years, you've got to let them free. These rules would lead to a gradual emancipation. If they had actually followed them, there would have been very few slaves left in Israel by the end of Exodus. Another thing to understand is that these particular rules are concessionary. In other words, he's dealing with the situation as it is and trying to move it to make it ideal. But he's having to... to deal with the situation as it is. Another example of that where Jesus points this out is in Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. And what he's, he's speaking there to the Pharisees about divorce. And it says, And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immoral, immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So you see, there's an example where Jesus is putting that back where it needs to be. Does that make sense? So when we first read this passage, and we look at it from the point of view of modern America, we think slavery is just plain, plain wrong, and we think that, well, Moses must think slavery is okay. Actually, that's not what it's saying. He's, he's setting up a plan here to um, for gradual but quick emancipation. And then secondly, it's talking about the care for the least. I cannot imagine the desperation that would lead a father to sell his daughter as a slave. But I do know this, it was common in the ancient world. How do you think that daughter felt about that? Yeah, I, I do not imagine that that was the 
best thing that happened to her so far in life. But clearly, these rules give this daughter extensive rights. And in fact, she is to be treated as a wife or a daughter. So clearly, what is going on in the passage here is that the least in society is actually being looked after, taken care of. And if you think that this is just um, all kind of a side issue, like it's, it's not all that big a deal, in Matthew 25, 40, Jesus describes the final judgment like this. And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so Jesus is taking the position that at judgment, the way that the least in society were treated is going to be the criterion. Quite a deal. So because of God's goodness in caring for those lesser than himself, we must also care for those who are weaker or lesser than ourselves. To answer, to answer Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You are your brother's keeper. Again, we start with a God. We start with a God who is. We see how ancient Israel applied that. And then based on that, we understand what we must be like to be like him. So we've looked at <clears throat> we've looked at worship. We've looked at care for the uh, the weakest. And now the next section really talks about respecting God's image. And I'm not going to go through this in as much detail. Uh, but I, I will talk some about it. Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 31. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willingly attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And many people have, have looked at this and thought, well, gee, this is harsh. Actually, the culture that these people were coming out of, and they, it's a culture that exists still in many parts of the, of the, the our modern world, especially in the Middle East. And it's a it was a revenge-based culture. That means there aren't authorities that are responsible to make sure that justice happens. It's basically up to your family to avenge wrongs done to you. This means there is no justice for the weak and unprotected members of society. It also means there is no objective way of determining guilt or innocence. We see this kind of uh, culture in the Middle East even today. Some of the experts that I have read in terms of what's going on in the Middle East identify this as the problem that, that, that prevents peace from breaking out over there. And that is that when can you ever get revenge? When do, you, when do you ever get to a situation when you are avenging yourself on someone else 
where everything's even. It's never even, right? I mean, you had brothers, right? And you fought it out over the toys. And when did when did you finally <laughs> hit him enough? You know, it's like when you got the toy. How did he feel about that? So it leads to a situation in in which society is constantly disrupted. Why does what what is Moses dealing with here? The issue is that murder defaces the image of God. Men and women were made in the image of God. The offender must be punished, but it not must not be done by vengeance. It must be done by a process of justice if the situation is to be set right. So Moses is setting up a system of justice here by identifying, and later on we'll see what the, what's going on, but he identifies cities of refuge that people can flee to and they can actually um, get some other people involved who are a little bit more objective to figure it out. Verse 16, it says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now, I know that there are Christians who justified American slavery, but I'll tell you what. They had to be doing, uh, yeah, hermeneutics that I've never heard of to get past that one. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. Okay. What's going on here? What he is clear of is the revenge thing. He is not clear of having committed a crime because he's still got to pay for the loss of his time and had the, had the healing done. Now, there's just so many good things in here, but I am going to have to, to move along and uh, to the end here. So in this, in this passage here, we see that because men are made in God's image, they must be respected. When that image is marred by the actions of others, they must be punished in a way that's commensurate with their crime. This punishment is to show our respect for God's image in us and in the offender. And people says, well, people say, well, you punish people to keep them from doing it again. Well, certainly I hope it keeps them from doing it again. Or they'll say, well, it writes the scales of justice. Now, the primary problem and someone has defaced the image of God. And that has to be set right. So what have we seen this morning? We've seen today that we must worship God only. That we must care for the weakest and we must respect God's image in men and women. We've seen that these things originate in the nature of God as revealed in the Ten Commandments and fulfilled in Jesus And we've seen that we must carefully consider context in applying the scriptures to our lives. And to tell you the truth, if I were going to boil down what it says in this passage, I would summarize it by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus said, That fulfills the law and the prophets.